Our guest on The Year That Made Me today is working on several long-term research studies. He's published 48 books and more than 1,370 articles. And while that all sounds very bookish, he's actually most comfortable outdoors in wild Australia. ANU's Professor David Lindenmeyer is an Australian scientist and researcher specialising in landscape ecology, conservation and biodiversity. He's also the lead scientist for Sustainable Farms, a team of expert ecologists based in regional New South Wales and Victoria that's just won a Eureka Prize for their work. Professor David Lindenmeyer, congratulations on the award and welcome to The Year That Made Me. Thank you very much, Julian. It's great to have you, David. Could we go all the way back to the beginning? Did you grow up in a house and in a family that was particularly interested in science? Um, my father was actually a rocket scientist, believe it or not. <laughs> really? Uh, he, made, he made rocket fuels for the, um, for the rocket program that they had at Woomera testing range. And uh, so, yes, he, he trained as a chemical engineer, but later became very concerned about what those rockets might be used for. So... He, he actually retrained after that. And later in his life, he became quite interested in the environment, particularly birds. So mm. that really sort of prompted my interest in, in parts of the environment. And yeah. Fantastic. And uh, were you yourself really fascinated by the, na the natural world from a very young age? Not particularly. I had a terribly misspent youth. I spent a lot of time kicking football. Oh, do tell. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, I uh, I played played football uh, soccer in in Canberra when I was growing up here. I I was born in Melbourne. Was in Melbourne for about ten years, and then my my family moved here to to Canberra. And as part of being in a very small city as it was then. Um, I wasn't allowed to play Aussie rules, wasn't allowed to play rugby, wasn't allowed to play rugby league. So the only game I was allowed to play was soccer. So I, I ended up kicking soccer balls for the next uh, eight or nine years. And um, that's what I wanted to be. But I was too physically challenged. I wasn't tall enough. My hands weren't big enough to be a goalkeeper. So perhaps well, that was I mean, a good thing. You, you say that, David. I'll say two things. Firstly, it doesn't sound too badly misspent as youths go. Uh, but also, uh, I mean, you were pretty good at uh, soccer, weren't you? Uh, well, perhaps back in those days, you didn't need to be really good to, <laughs> to go terribly far. Although I did play with quite a number of people that were extremely good. Um, I think that the real awakening for me was when I spent time in the Netherlands with one of the giant teams uh, in, that it's had a lot of players in the World Cup at that stage. This was 1978, 79. And you realise that there's a very big difference between your own abilities and, and those of other people. And um, I probably then decided it was a better thing to do to go in a different direction, which is how I ended up in the environment. <laughs> right. So you, so you played, I believe, A-League and played Europe for a year, but you decided uh, to come back. What did you do when you came back to Australia, David? Uh, I was I was very lost at that stage. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I started doing outdoor things, um, cross-country skiing, which I still do now and, and love. And I also took up scuba diving, which I also do still and love. And I decided that I wanted to do marine biology. So I went to Townsville and started studying marine biology and, and was fascinated by that. And I worked for an extraordinary person called Charlie Verin who was the person that reclassified all the corals on the Great Barrier Reef. And Charlie is still alive today and really quite an extraordinary scientist. 
And I, I uh, worked as a volunteer for Charlie, basically swimming underwater on scuba with a laundry basket, collecting corals as he chipped them off, threw them over his shoulder, and then later went on to classify them and reclassify all of the corals on the Great Barrier Reef, and a truly extraordinary man. Mm. But perhaps one of the most amazing things was that Charlie, for his honours degree, started studying greater gliders, this wonderful animal, which is like a small gliding koala that lives in, in our forests. And then from there, graduated to, to being a fantastic coral reef biologist, whereas I started as a volunteer on the Great Barrier Reef and ended up studying greater gliders. So <laughs> our careers in reverse yeah, in many ways. So, And, and that, I believe, <clears throat> uh, Professor David Lindenmeyer leads us to the year that you've chosen as the year that made you. What year have you chosen and why? I've chosen 1983. So 1983 was an extraordinary year in my life. I um, had just graduated from the Australian National University with uh, a, a science degree. And I worked as a volunteer for a remarkable scientist called Craig Moritz. And he had discovered that there was a, a species of gecko that occurred all throughout Australia, but most of the populations of geckos were actually females that, that butted off a cell from their bodies to create new geckos. Mm. So basically geckos without sex. <laughs> and so they produced clones of themselves. And so he was traveling all around Australia collecting these animals to understand this, how this extraordinary breeding system worked. And I worked with him as a, as a volunteer and we went to some of the most remarkable places in the country. It's just extraordinary. That does sound and fantastic. The... Uh, and I, I'm detecting a theme here, David, clearly inspired by the work of inquisitive scientists who uh, get out into the outdoors and do important observation and sort of uh, classification work, but a lot of it voluntary so far. Did you end up getting any paid work in science at any point? Oh, I did. I did. I tried lots of different things, ranging from uh, collecting corals to uh, collecting geckos to uh, bottling earthworms at the Australian Museum we go. as a volunteer, of course. <laughs> and then I eventually landed a job working for an, another remarkable scientist, Dr. Andrew Smith, in the mountain ash forests of the central highlands of Victoria. And gosh, th that really did change my life. That was mid-1983. Uh, the Hawke government had just been elected yes. and the drought was broken. Bob Hawke broke the drought and it rained and it rained and it rained. And so for the first three months of my life working in those forests in mid-1983, it rained every day and it didn't just drizzle, <laughs> it just bucketed down the whole so time. More like the year that drenched you. <clears throat> That's right. And you make some interesting discoveries when you work in those forests for the first time. You discover that when it's very wet, there's also a lot of other leeches and um, <laughs> that, that made life interesting. But I... After some time, learning just how to deal with, with working in such an amazing place, really began to, to love working in those forests. And that's something that we still do today, 39 years later. Mm. And uh, it's really set my career and, and shaped my thinking in so many different ways. So yes, 1983 was a remarkable time. On the year that made me, we're speaking with Professor David Lindenmeyer, who's the lead scientist for Sustainable Farms. And David, you mentioned uh, the gliders 
earlier, and you've also been a great advocate for protecting the endangered um, leadbeater's possum. Uh, and that also, I believe, dates back to that time when you started working in the Victorian forests? That's right. 1983, Andrew Smith's project was really about understanding where does leadbeater's possum occur and why does it occur where it does. An important perspective on this is that no animal occurs everywhere all the time. Mm. And so trying to understand which bits of the forest were important for that animal really was, was central to, to his, his study. And so I did all the technical work for that. And as part of that, we really needed to understand what all the other species were doing. And that's where animals like the greater glider, the mountain brush-tailed possum, another wonderful creature called the yellow-bellied glider, which has, has an incredible call that sounds like a cross between a frothing cappuccino machine and a squealing pig, <laughs> if you could imagine that. <laughs> and, and then understanding what the different animals were doing was really related to how the, the forest changes as it's been disturbed and then recovers, how that changes with the effects of logging or fire or both. And that's really set a whole body of work going that still exists today. And uh, I, I now have a, a wonderful technical officer who works down there as part of our team, he's in the forest every day collecting really important measurements of, about how those different species are tracking, how the forest is doing, how it responds to fire and all, all manner of things. And it really is, as well as getting out and about, there's just a, a, an incredible level of meticulous detail that goes into the research work that you do. Is there someone you could sort of give us a bit of a, uh, an insight into what sort of meticulous detail your research has gone into and, and what the benefits of doing things that rigorously are? Well, typically what we do with our long-term studies, and these are very large-scale studies that have been uh, designed and implemented over very big scales for mm. long periods of time. We have many, many sites that, that are permanent sites and we revisit those every year or sometimes several times a year. And we, we measure the vegetation. So how tall are the trees? How big are the trees? How many different species of plants are there? And then we measure the animals, the different species of birds. And in some cases, there might be a, 100 to 120 different species of birds that visit a particular site. So we need to record how many individuals, which different species, uh, what time of the day, whether it's windy or whether it's sunny, those kinds of things, because mm. they affect your ability to detect these different species. So we build up very meticulously, carefully collected data sets to understand how the environment's changing and why things are changing in the way they are. It's amazing that level of detail and the expanse of what you're covering. At Sustainable Farms, though, David, there's absolutely no doubt that you're applying that meticulous research in, a, in an innovative way. Indeed, that's what you uh, won the Eureka Prize for. It was the Prize for Applied Environmental Research in the Innovation category. What did the Sustainable Farms team create to win that award? So one of the things that, that's important in the farm space is that there's really big opportunities to integrate agricultural production and biodiversity conservation. And one of our bodies of work is around what birds on farms are doing. And birds are, are pretty good indicators of the condition of, of the environment on farms. And so over the last 20 years, we've been gathering data at hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of sites from central Victoria all the way up to far north northern New South Wales, right throughout the wheat sheep belt or the temperate woodland areas. And so we're able to put all of our data together to understand what the bird biodiversity dividends are 
of, for example, replanting areas or restoring areas along streams, planting shelter belts between paddocks, uh, changing grazing regimes. So this really gives us an idea of how we can better manage the natural assets on farms to produce good biodiversity outcomes. And so that means that any farmer in any particular area can use some of these new, new tools that we've created to be able to predict what species they should have on their farms, or if they made some management interventions, for example, to plant some more areas along their streamlines, which species of birds they're likely to get as a result of their actions. So this is, this is really using long-term data to be able to help us predict what the outcomes will be of better managing our natural assets. Professor David Lindenmeyer, in your time, you haven't been afraid to voice your opinions about whether uh, Australia is doing enough to protect its fauna. Uh, what's your sense of how we are going as a nation in that regard right now? It's true that I've often been very outspoken, particularly as I get older and grumpier. <laughs> you don't sound too grumpy, do um, you? <laughs> oh, well, some people believe I've got irritable male syndrome, and I think that's probably right. Um, and I think there's a moral obligation if if you have the, the kinds of knowledge that we have uh, have been able to assemble over all these years. I think it is really important to tell people how we're tracking to tell people that we can do a lot better in the way that we manage our forests, that we can do a lot better in the way that we manage our farms. And when we look at the broader continental picture, you know, it's, it's not a good space for Australia. Australia leads the world in mammal extinctions. Australia has a massively high level of, of land clearing. You know, we're logging large areas of native forests that we really shouldn't be in a, in a climate sensitive world. So I think it's really important to speak out about these things and let people know that things aren't good, but also to tell them that we can change things, turn things around and really have good outcomes. And, and our sense, for example, is if we were to stop native forest logging in Victoria, that would be the equivalent of taking 730,000 cars off the road every year mm. that we don't cut those forests. And at the same time, we can source almost all of our timber products from existing plantations. And so being able to speak out about these things is really important because it shapes the trajectory for a better place. And it's actually jobs positive when we do things like that, because we can have a workforce associated with managing the carbon, with processing Australian grown timber in Australia for Australian jobs, protecting biodiversity, creating new ecotourism opportunities. So, you know, there, there is a brighter future if we take particular directions based on good scientific evidence and good economic evidence. Well, David, it's been a real great pleasure speaking with you on The Year That Made Me today. Thank you so much for speaking with us. And we always finish up the segment by asking our guests to nominate a piece of music to go out with. You chose 1983 as your year. The piece of music doesn't have to come from then, but what piece of music have you chosen to go out with today and why? I've chosen a song by Simple Minds and it's 81, 82, 83, 84, that New Gold Dream. And it's a song that sort of still motivates me. It takes me back to my time when I first started uh, working in the forests. And I also have it on my computer as a sort of a G-up song for when I get on my bike and ride home late in the evenings. And um, yeah, it's a, it's a song that I, I have always found inspiring, takes me to a good place and um, gives me hope for, for a new gold dream, a new world a place that's um, better than the one that we're in the moment. Fantastic. Well, let's have a bit of a Sunday morning G up now. Thank you so much for speaking with us, David Lindenmeyer. That's a pleasure. Thank you, Julian. And when you dream-
Yes, there it is. Simple Minds, New Golden Dream, a great G-Up song. Uh, full title, brackets 81, 82, 83, 84. 83 was the year chosen by our guest on the year that made me, Professor David Lindenmeyer. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.